0: Speed up with podcast. Speed up. Rationally speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting
1: critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org.
0: Welcome to Rationally Speaking. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci. And with me, as always, is Julia Galev, my co-host. Before we get into today's um, uh, topic, we, we're, for which we have a, a, a guest, a uh, very esteemed guest, I would like to make a special announcement, which is that uh, New York City Skeptics is hosting again an annual event uh, called the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. The date for it is April 17. Uh, last time it was an awesome event with an all-day sequence of speakers and panel discussions. It was very well attended. There were more than 400 people uh, in New York for that event. And if you're interested in participating and signing up for the event, the website is org. All right, Julia, we got to this point. What are we got to talk about today?
2: Well, Massimo, uh, we're honored today to have a very special guest in studio with us. Um, with us today is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, he's an astrophysicist and the director of the Hayden Planetarium. Um, Neil's joining us to talk about the status of the space program today. Um, what are its goals currently? And uh, what practical benefits does the space program have for our society? And to the extent that it doesn't have practical benefits... Um, what are the justifications for spending taxpayer money on it or on any other science without applied benefits? Um.
0: Neil, welcome.
1: All right, thank you. <laughs> so what, what you do you think? To talk about all that?
0: <laughs> and more, in fact. <laughs> so really, uh, that, as you know, this has been in the news uh, for some time recently because of uh, budget cuts to NASA and, and, and things of that sort. So, so what would be uh, your take if you were to talk to President Obama today and say, you know, you really do need to fund this thing? And what would
1: be your best pitch? Well, let me remind some listeners, or alert them perhaps for the first time, what it is we're talking about. The Obama administration in the new NASA budget made some fundamental changes to what's in the portfolio of NASA's ambitions. Uh, Some are good, some are neutral, some have been heavily criticized. The one that has had hardly any resistance and was broadly praised was the urge to get NASA out of low-Earth orbit and privatize that entire enterprise. And so what that would mean is NASA, which was chartered to advance a space frontier, low earth orbit, low earth orbit is a couple of hundred miles up. That's where the space station orbits, space shuttles go, that sort of thing. We could, we know how to do that. We've been doing it for decades. In fact, the space shuttle goes there and it's boldly going where hundreds have gone before. That, that's, <laughs> that's not a frontier. So... Typically, the way governments, the way our government has birthed new industries in the past, is they make the initial investments before capital markets can value them.
0: Right,
1: and that's where there's high risk. Patents get made and get allocated. Uh, uh, patents get earned and get allocated, and, and early monies get made. But only when the risks are managed and are understood does the uh, would a capital market then take interest. The notion here is that there's enough business going on in low Earth orbit. You're you know, GPS uh, marketing, um, uh, uh, all the, that is all of the com- all of the consumer products that thrive on GPS right now. Right. This is all. This is all commercial markets. The uh, DirecTV, other satellite communications. So get NASA out of that business. And right? you seem to be favorable to that idea. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's not a frontier anymore. So give, give it away. Well, one, one question that comes after,
0: actually, in, in relation to this particular uh, sector of the low-orbit um, uh, business is, you know, what is exactly that the space station has been doing up there? We know it's there. Orbiting is
1: orbits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that. <laughs> no, so it's an international collaboration. In fact, it's, other than Antarctica, it's probably the next best example of international cooperation there ever was in the history of the world. That's pretty countries. high price. Yes, it is. It is. And Antarctica, if you didn't know, it's a it's a collaboration of multiple countries going down there right. doing science research, and no one is making land grabs. Nobody. It's just a cooperate. Maybe it's because no one really wants to live there. <laughs> so, uh, that would be my guess. But <laughs> so that helps in the collaboration. Yes. Uh, no one wants to be king of nothing. You know. So no, but Antarctica is a beautiful place, and it is unique in location for certain kinds of science that can be conducted in part because it's cold and there's so there's low moisture in the air. And if you're near the South Pole, it's actually very high elevation. So you're above a lot of the atmosphere that would otherwise interfere with your view of the night sky. So a lot of astrophysics goes on in the South Pole. The point is that's a area of high international collaboration. So too is the International Space Station. It demonstrated that we can have major projects of inter- international collaborators. It demonstrates that we can build things in space. It was a day when we thought if we're going to build a telescope or build some piece of hardware, we'd need a surface to do it on. And we realized that if you have a surface, that means there's gravity. That means you have to be structurally supportive of the weight of the system you're building. If you do it in orbit, everything's weightless. So uh, it's, it's a remarkable engineering achievement. Not only that, different countries have modules. These are the segments of the International Space Station where they're conducting their own science. Japan has a has a module. Um, the European uh, Union has uh, modules. And so... Within them, they have their own space laboratories, conducting but what I, their own peer-reviewed research. But
0: what I'm hearing, therefore, is that would you make their, the, an exception for the space station in terms of what you just said a minute ago, uh, uh, privatization as opposed to government-funded uh, research?
1: Oh, well, you wouldn't necessarily privatize the space station right now, but you'd certainly privatize access to it. You'd sell trips to the space station. Right. Sure. Why not? If, if someone's going to go up there… And that's really where the privatization would first reveal itself in the the new plan. But that And so no one's complaining about that. Where Obama got in a little bit of hot water was his cancellation of the NASA plan to return to the moon. Yes. The moon is an interesting target. First, it's nearby. Of course, we've already been there. But in part because we've already been there, it means you can go there with higher confidence that you'll succeed. Whereas a round trip to Mars Mm – Astronauts away from the protective blanket of Earth's magnetic field would be subject to radiation uh, to, uh, to 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 radiation from the sun, solar flares. This sort of thing. These are high-energy high charged particles that can come in and basically ionize your atoms. And that, that would be bad if that, if that so happened.
0: You, so would you see, therefore, the, the uh, a possible moon station, for instance,
1: as a stepping stone toward a Mars mission? No, because if you're going to go to Mars, you don't want to go somewhere else first, generally, because it takes energy to land. Once you get up enough speed, you don't want to stop until you get to where you're going. If you get up enough speed and go to the moon, then you have to slow down again. You need fuel to slow down. If the moon had an atmosphere, you could use the atmosphere to slow down just as the space shuttle does. That's why it needs tiles, these famous heat tiles that (laughs) dissipate the heat of reentry. That's a good thing. If it didn't do that, the shuttle would burn up and the shuttle wouldn't be able to stop. Or the shuttle simply wouldn't be able to stop if there was no such way to to dissipate the energy of motion. So with Mars, a, a trip to Mars could be hazardous to astronauts. And do you bring all your resources with you? If you're taking a road trip to California, are you? Do you attach a super tanker to you, and that's the fuel you need to? No. You or do you do you bring a farm with you? No. You rely on the fact that there's a quick mart at intermediate stops between where you are in California, so you can refill and buy some food. Right. A, go- a long term goal is that if we become spacefaring, that Resources in space can be used for space, not necessarily brought back to Earth. And so the moon is out of the picture, but Obama had said, let's continue to do research on launch vehicles and rocket technologies to one day get us to Mars. But that one day was not specified. And that's what got people a little uncomfortable. Did the moon is
0: out of the picture surprise the scientific community given the recent discoveries, for instance, about the possibility of water on on the moon?
1: Most scientists... There's some key vocal exceptions to this, but most scientists, myself included, if I were to pick the moon or Mars about what would be an interesting place to go to, it's Mars. Mars has all this evidence of running water, today bone dry. It has methane uh, effusing its way out of the side of a cliff, recently measured. It's got evidence of possible liquid water laying recent tracks within the soils. So what drives us, not just that it's an interesting geology or marsology because geo means earth in this case of course it's not simply that it's interesting geology but if there was once water there every place on earth where there was liquid water there's life so we know deep down in our quest to search these planetary surfaces we're really looking for life
2: and can you talk about the advantage of putting a human on mars as opposed to robotic exploration of mars there's no advantage there's no advantage. Well, than the, sorry, the sorry. Let me,
1: let me, that's the short answer, but let me give nuances. Yeah, to we that. got a few more minutes. You got a few <laughs> more minutes. It costs anywhere between 20 and 50 times more in budget and mm-hmm. cost, in, in outlay of cash to send a human to a destination than it does to send a robot. So if you're a scientist interested in scientific returns, even if you're a geologist, even if you're the rock jock from Mount Olympus and I say to you, I can send you with your rock hammer and I'll maybe even give you a few machines to make measurements. I can do that once or I can fund fund 30 different rovers that you can choose where you want to put them, any place on the Martian surface, and they'll carry these machines that I'd otherwise be giving to you. What would you pick? seems like a no-brainer to me. It's a no-brainer. Scientifically, it's a no-brainer. Right. That's the point. It's because of the price difference that any scientist interested in scientific results would not, could not, with a with a with a clear conscience, vote to send a human there. So that leaves us with two options: either you get the cost of flying humans there really low, so that it's competitive with robots, and you just send a person, because you can do in a few moments, but in a few minutes, what it might take a, a rover all day to do, right? Because the brain, the human brain, is is more uh, intuitive. About what it's looking at than a robot is that you program, and so program. is a subset of what you are, but it's still not you, because humans will program. It. That's itself an interesting philosophical conversation. Can yes, you we can a, have a separate show on that whole <laughs> show. Can you program a computer to be more intuitive than you are, mm-hmm. if you're the programmer, and mm-hmm. so? I'll leave that one for you, you philosophers. Sure. Love <laughs> we'll questions talk like about that. It. We'll
0: talk about it.
1: That, and for, I mean, scientists, we'll just do it over a beer, and then the beer ends, we get back to work. But you guys <laughs> just keep talking about it. That's right. The Speaking
0: of over a beer, so so before the show, we were talking about something that I think is very pertinent to this topic, which is um, how historically – really, really large, very, very expensive projects got funded. And you want to talk about that a little bit? Because this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about a huge, historically, very large project.
1: Sure. So I did a little homework 10 years ago, which ended up as a chapter in the Columbia history of the 20th century, a book published at the turn of the millennium. And my chapter was called Paths to Discovery. This was not your ordinary millennium book that just gives a history. The editors wanted its content to be more reflective, wanted experts in various fields to be reflective on what was known and what impact the developments had on what was known, rather than simply being a historical account. So my chapter I titled, Paths to Discovery. And what I wanted to do there, because I wanted to go to Mars, I wanted to send people to Mars, and so I wanted to, well, how, what would that cost? Is it a hundred billion dollars? Is it half a trillion dollars? Whatever it is, it's gonna be expensive. Well, let me take my cue from history. What other expensive projects in either human capital or financial capital uh, cost that much? I asked myself. And what did they do to get that funded? Maybe we can learn something from that. So I was prepared to actually fill an entire book of all the ways cultures, going back thousands of years, have justified spending large portions of their state wealth
0: but it turns out we're not that imaginative, right? There are only two or three ways in
1: which we. Yeah. Talking. So it turns out there wasn't a whole book's full. There's like three three drivers. One of them is praise of royalty and, and deity. So that was like there's the pyramids right there. It's the expensive tombstones for the pharaohs. The building of the cathedrals in Europe, especially Italy. These are activities undertaken uh, in part out of deep respect and in other parts out of deep fear of the power of who it is you're doing this for. So
0: we could ask the Pope to fund
1: the research In principle, however, Mars. we live in a time where these are not common activities for states to undergo, states as in just nation-states to un- undertake. So that leaves these other two drivers that I found. And so one of them is the, the promise of economic return. And that's where you get the Columbus voyages, you get uh, the Magellan voyages, Lewis and Clark, major undertakings of a society. And then there's, of course, war. The I don't want to die, driver. So this is the I don't want to die, and I don't want to die poor. And the war driver gets you the Great Wall of China. It gets you the Manhattan Project. It gets you the Apollo program.
0: I was going to say, it seems to me that in fact a large part of the uh, the space program has been driven by that precisely from
1: the 1950s through the 70s, at least. Exactly. If you you know, we all remember the words. If not, you were not alive. You've certainly seen clips of President Kennedy saying. We will return him, put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before the decade is out. And these are powerful words that galvanize the ambitions of a nation. But this is a speech given to the Joint Session of Congress, May 25th, 1961, just a few weeks after Yuri Gagarin had just come out of orbit over in the Soviet Union. And so this speech was in reaction to the fact that we did not yet have a man-rated, called man-rated, a rocket safe enough to put a human on as opposed to a satellite that you might might be more prone to experiment with cheaper components. And so if you read that same speech a few paragraphs earlier, it says, if the events of recent weeks, Yuri Gagarin, are any indication of the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere, we need to show the world the path of tyranny um, will fail compared to our path of freedom. Right. This, so, was a, this was a battle cry against communism. Right. So it was a political statement. Period. And without that, he could have said, let's go to the moon, it's great, we're discovered that no one would have written the check. At some point somebody's got to write the check.
2: Right. So it occurs to me that China's space program is is developing, right? Yes. And in the next decade or 10, 15 years, China may be poised to rival us as, as the superpower of the world. So that could potentially spark um, another influx and in interest in, in funding space a exploration. A moment. Right, sure, that's a good name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a few of our commenters on Rationally Speaking um, pointed out, the uh, the kind of research that, that might be justified with this kind of reason might not be the same kind of research that would be justified for, scientific, for the best kind of scientific research. Um, science has never so, been a
1: driver of expensive projects. We have, depending on the wealth of the nation, you could spend money on science below a certain radar level without it really getting heavily debated. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Hubble telescope, over all its years, comes to about $12 billion. It's less than a billion per year. That's a threshold that com- fits comfortably below the radar of criticism for a science project or for projects that's not economics or war. And you raise it up above 10 billion, 20, 30 billion. If there's not a weapon at the other end of that experiment, <laughs> or you don't see the face of God, or you don't find oil wells, it it's at risk of getting, uh, risk of failing as a funded project. And just that, that's what happened with the super collider, the superconducting super collider in America. We were going to have the most powerful particle accelerator in the world. It was proposed and conceived in the late seventies, funded in the early eighties, 1989 comes out and what happens in 1989? Peace breaks out. Peace breaks out. Well, before yeah, then... I, I hate when that happens. Yeah, you hate when that happens. <laughs> so inconvenient. Physicists basically won the Second World War with the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. So America had a fully funded particle physics program. Do you know that the bomb on Nagasaki was not a uranium bomb? It was the plutonium bomb. That was the bomb that was tested in, in Trinity Point of New Mexico. You know, there's that one bomb that they tested. Right. They test, why did they test that one? Because it used plutonium. 1945. Well, where do you get plutonium from? It had just been discovered in 1940.
0: That's a pretty quick,
1: quick turnaround. That's I a quick turnaround. So, yeah. Well, when, you, when, when, you, when you're at war, money flows like rivers. So what happens? 1989, peace breaks out. Within three years, the entire budget for the super collider is canceled. Mm. And I, and I, I remember… Uh, particular- oh, wait, so what happens now? Europe says, we'll take the mantle. Sure. All right, and they build the large hadron collider. Right. At the, the At European CERN, Center yeah. for Nuclear Research, CERN, right. is the French acronym for that. And now we're standing on our shores looking across the pond saying, oh, guys, can we join? Can we help? And we-
0: There was an interesting thing, that uh, an interesting little exchange that I remember from those hearings that you're talking about where one of the senators on, uh, that was evaluating essentially the expense for the, uh, for the collider. Yeah, the, the continued uh, expense. For, right, the yes. continued expense. I uh, asked uh, uh, Steven Weinberg, the, one of the physicists who was uh, testifying in Congress, well, you know, uh, he said, Professor Weinberg, unfortunately, the, one of the problems is that, uh, you know, uh, it's it's hard for me to tell uh, to justify this expense to my constituents because, you know, after all, nobody eats quarks. And of course, Weinberg, in, a typ- in his typical fashion, uh, d- pretending to do a little calculation on his on, on his piece of paper in front of me, and said, "Well, actually, Senator, by my calculation, you just ate a few billion quarks this morning for breakfast," <laughs> <That's right. laughs> which was a very good rhetoric. Re- uh, uh, except that I didn't think it helped. It helped exactly uh, Weinberg's point. So the the basic the bottom line, therefore, is, however. Uh, fine. We get only basic research uh, project, large basic research projects if they piggyback on on, as you said, the big three. Yeah, the,
1: they have, have to piggyback on that, or be below the funding threshold to to be uh, scrutinized. And on somebody may ask reasonably, uh, should it be otherwise? I mean, you know, wh- why not? Why is that not reasonable? I'm just saying, you know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying, <laughs> I look for five thousand years, and unless we're going to believe that we're a fundamentally different kind of Populated culture Than has ever preceded us I'm going to take my cue from the history Of major funded projects And say that if we're going to go to Mars It will likely only happen If we can find an economic driver for it Or a military driver So I, I joke about this Partly seriously And I say let's get China to leak a memo That says that they want to build military bases on Mars If that's the case we'd be on Mars in 12 months You've heard them here first the <laughs> speaking
2: <laughs> Um, Well, do you think there's any case to be made for the fact that so many scientific discoveries um, that end up being incredibly useful practically were actually discovered accidentally in the course of just exploratory research or in the course of of completely unrelated research, that they were a lucky accident? Can we make that case for space exploration?
1: Uh, No, because – that's an excellent question – no, because the time delay between a serendipitous scientific discovery – on the frontier of our understanding of science and when that becomes a a useful product that has been engineered designed and marketed is longer typically than the re-election cycles of those who are <laughs> allocating money and so it does not survive you can't get politicians to decide to invest this way because it's irrelevant to their the needs of their constituency. At Th-
0: that's the time. why we need the monarchy or the pope to sponsor these kind of projects <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> they last longer, right? And you're from Italy, right? Where the pope yes, is yes. there? Okay, you gotta <laughs> watch watch this guy, Julia. <laughs> but more generally, I think uh, an interesting question that this this whole discussion uh,
1: raises is well, actually I didn't finish. Yeah, yeah uh, go Let ahead. me just complete the answer sure. to your question about NASA. So. I don't think we'll ever go to Mars unless we can find an economic reason for doing it or a military reason. And until then, we're just kind of driving around the block.
0: Right. So, But you, are, you're, you spend a, a significant amount of your time you know, talking and writing for the general public. And so this, this whole discussion does deal with how scientists communicate and in particular uh, uh, justify their
1: work and therefore publicly funded work. Because oh, by the after way, all, I know how to justify the $100 billion. I can do that. But it takes longer than what they call the elevator conversation. Right, you're, you're only elevator for like thirty seconds with the congressman. It's your only chance you have to influence their their policies and voting. Go you right, know? and my but mine takes maybe three minutes, but not thirty seconds.
0: But what about the journalists, You know, forget for a minute the politicians. It is true that they ultimately. And by the way,
1: Make we the decisions. these people. They serve us. Why do I only get 30 seconds of their time? Exactly. Well, you, know. you,
2: you could stop the elevator.
1: No. <laughs> you could stop <laughs> the could elevator. <laughs> but if you wanted to make the point to
0: a general public and say, okay, here, here are good reasons to, to fund uh, you know, space exploration or, or basic scientific research in astrophysics, uh, other than you know, it's just my curiosity, I want to
1: be paid to do things that I like, well, what would you say? No, we are funding basic research in astrophysics. That is happening. What this conversation is about is the manned space program that's where the expense comes in that's where you're above those funding thresholds that then appeal to these fam- these great drivers in the history of culture so we we got the hubble telescope we're going to have a laboratory on mars in a few years it's called the mars science laboratory we've got we're in orbit around cassini right now around we have cassini in orbit around saturn right now the name of one of the spacecraft observing saturn and its moons and its ring systems we've got another spacecraft on its way to pluto We've got telescopes being designed and built that will observe more parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Science is getting done. I wish there was more of it, but it's getting done. That's not the, that's not the variable. But there. as
0: you pointed out before, not the Hadron Collider. We had, now we have the Europeans, too, again, right? And, and the good. it was a good question, I, I suppose, in some sense, that the Texas senator uh, uh, brought up, which, which was, you know, how do I justify this to my constituents? Now,
1: I, I'm not willing to... I part- claim that even if he said, oh, you'll get great products at the end of it, it wouldn't have happened. You think it, so? it would have okay. to have said, at the end of this, you have a weapon and you can protect the country. There, there's a famous reply. I don't remember who said it to whom, but it gets often repeated. And I think it plays well if you say it, but it's not. It's it's. According to my analysis of the three drivers, it wouldn't work. So. Right. The, so the senator says to the scientist, uh, uh, what about this project will help in the defense of America? Right. There's the war question that comes out. He said, Senator, uh, I don't know how it can help in the defense of America other than to ensure that America is a country worth defending.
0: Yes. And that, as you know, it's a great argument that he's not going to fly. It doesn't fly.
1: (laughs) It plays well. It makes a good headline. But no, no.
2: There's one other potential case I can think of for space travel that we haven't really talked about, which is uh, you mentioned earlier, you alluded to if we become a spacefaring people, we Mm -hmm. might need these um, moon and Mars as sort of quick Mars. Um, mars. Do you think uh, we could make the practical case that we need to, um, to venture out into space because earth will at some point be uninhabitable? Is that, is that enough of a practical case to be made?
1: There are many who make that case. Stephen Hawking among them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rich Gott is another one, a professor at Princeton. I have a dissenting view, whatever it is we do, that messes up earth if we have the power to terraform mars and make that another planet that we go live on spreading our genetic code to become a multi planet species if we have the power to do that we have the power to fix earth if we can terraform mars and and ship a billion people there it seems to me it would be a little easier to fix the rivers and the oceans and it seems to me why not terraforming earth thank you (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. T- Terraform, find a f- get a recipe that'll like fix the Earth problem. Yeah, and so I don't think the space is necessarily the most obvious way you would spend money to fix Earth or to resolve the we messed up Earth problem.
2: Right, that's a really good point. Um, we're going to wrap up this section of Rattually wrap up. Speaking. We just began, and <laughs>
0: I
1: know. Well, we're again, the whole universe here. <laughs> <We're> <laughs>
2: gonna... <laughs> We'll bring you back. Um, when we return, we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking picks where our guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson, will present his pick for the episode.
0: We are back at Rationally Speaking with our guest, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who will be uh, doing the pick of this episode. Neil, what did you choose?
1: A little cliche, but I'd have to say the film Avatar. Ah, For the following reason. Every now and then a science fiction movie comes along, and whether they get it right or wrong, it's possible for that which is right and that which is wrong to both serve as teachable moments. Give us an example. An example. So we have these 10-foot tall, blue, three-fingered aliens with like, USB ponytails and live in a Keebler tree, right? And don't forget the breasts, even though they're not mammals. Okay. (laughs) We
2: haven't forgotten the breasts.
1: So we've got them, and yet it shows positively no imagination for what aliens from another star system would look like, because other creatures on our own planet don't have heads, two eyes, nose, mouth, ears, shoulders, arms, legs. We... So much on our own planet does not look like us, and we have DNA in common with them.
2: But Neil, we have to be able to fall in love with them. That's the
1: thing. Hence, oh. <laughs> hence the br- I don't know. So One this point about hence the look like a worm right. or a lobster. <laughs> <laughs> they got to like be hot babes out there. Exactly. You
2: know? Yeah, that's not box office gold. That's not They're box office. Man on so, so I now. understand
1: that and I accept it. But there are other things. For example, the unobtainium that was kind of cool. Notice it was floating over the desk. If you remember the, the movie, everyone's seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a gazillion. Through three billion dollar film, everybody's seen it. So, so what? What were those floating mountains? You know, why were they floating? I, I don't. Oh, I don't mind if you want to float them. But why was water falling off the side of them? That's why right. does the rock float in the water? That so maybe they're made of unobtainium. But if they're made of unobtainium, why do you have to blow up a Keebler tree to get the unobtainium <laughs> beneath it? You just cart away one of the mountain, one of the one of the floating mountains and if you had spaceships to get you from the sun to alpha centauri you can surely haul one of these mountains back with you i would think so so you need some consistency there plus if that's that (laughs) far in the future 2157 if i remember the date uh plus or minus then why are they still using like guns with bullets isn't there some more creative weaponry they have other than like apocalypse now you know then then if there's this spirit that permeates the planet that's kind of cool. Well, start off, if there's a biology that permeates the planet, that's cool. Clearly, the Avatarians or the, the Pandorians, they, yes. they <laughs> co-evolve with the plant life, which is why they have the USB ponytail. Exactly. That's cool. So if that's how you're going to do it, take me places with that. But then they put in the spirit thing where they're worshipping a tree and and then the bad things happening to the planet. So now the spirit is going to rise up and summon the defenses. And I thought maybe all the trees would – you know, pull a Wizard of Oz on them and throw apples at the bad guys or something, because we told we're told the trees are all connected with a neuro-connectivity and greater than the human react. React. They So should they react. should they should come together. You wouldn't need spirits for that if they're connected chemically. But even if you had spirits, they're summoning the spirits, and who comes to save the day? Some rhinoceroses and some some canine creatures. Well, Tarzan could have summoned them. You don't need spirits to get. So so I think it failed. And what it could have done with the power of spirits... And it failed with with what it could have done with the power of biology to fight this assault. I think this is an
0: interesting point in general. That is, obviously, we do know uh, that when you go to a movie to see a movie, especially a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie, you have to, as they say, suspend your disbelief, right? But I think what you're getting at is is one of the things that irritate me as well in in similar circumstances, which is there's suspension of disbelief and then there's idiocy and inconsistency. Exactly. Uh, And they're different. Exactly. I'm perfectly willing to suspend my disbelief. I don't mind blue people. That's fine.
1: Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm cool
0: with that. So if you had to have your pick, on the other hand, of a science fiction movie that uh, satisfied you from that perspective, that was, you know, where, where people actually learned something, things
1: were consistent and so on and so forth. What, what would you pick? Contact. Contact. Yes. It's in part because they didn't even show you the aliens. Right. They knew enough to say something with no genetic overlap with anything on Earth is not even something we can imagine. It's not, so we're not going to put an actor in a costume and have him slither or crawl Onto the set. Let's just create it some, make it some entity. What I was fascinated by with contact what's, what, was the study of human behavior in response to this knowledge that intelligence right. was found elsewhere in the galaxy. And you know that's how, exactly how society is going to react. There'll be wackos, there'll be, and that's kind of spooky. So it's a scary view of the future. It says that we it, look at the consequence of rampant science illiteracy. They don't even know how to handle the possibility that there could be some more intelligent species out there. So I thought that it was just well done. It had good drama, good character development – And it was a very important scientific concept. Of
0: course, uh, it was written by Carl Sagan, who was both a very good scientist and a a good science popularizer, which means that he did have actually a good understanding of the psychology of pseudoscience and reactions to science, the relationship between science and religion, for instance, which was prominent in
1: in that um, movie. And I I was proud of the movie for not shying away from that because that clearly would show up as, as we project for the future what would unfold.
2: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today for this episode of Rationally Speaking. You bring Rationally me on to talk about the universe
1: and you're done in 30 minutes. Well, I don't, you know, what, what is that about?
2: <laughs> it's a, the nutshell version of the universe.
1: The nutshell. Universe in a nutshell. <laughs> right. Universe in a, in a, in a mustard seed. Yeah, okay.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Neil. Um, you can all uh, check out our website at rationallyspeaking.org for uh, more about this episode and future episodes. And join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense.
1: The Rationally Speaking Podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.